this time, I would encourage you to take out your Bible, and we will look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verses 3 through 8 and 12 through 19, in uh, Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. Christianity is a historical religion. Christianity was not devised by wise men of old who have passed on their insights from generation to generation in developing and fashioning what we believe and practice today. Rather, Christianity has its roots in a set of events, a set of factual historical events regarding the person and work, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And without these specific events, there would be no Christianity. Christianity is not a philosophy about life, nor is it merely precepts for living. Christianity, in a nutshell, is following with wholehearted devotion the divine man who came to our rescue. We believe that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, who came and dwelt among us about 2,000 years ago. And if you take any of those components away, you lose Christianity completely. Tonight, as we wrap up our series using following Tim Keller's The Reason for God, we come to uh, this Easter message of, of resurrection. And we uh, look to 1 Corinthians 15, the classic text uh, from the letters of Paul on the matters and the events regarding the resurrection of Christ. In fact, this, we believe, is the earliest written record we have of the events regarding uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in this text, we'll see that Paul explains what is at stake regarding whether the resurrection really took place or not. So I invite you to follow, follow me as I read 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 3. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. Now down to verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let us pray. Father God, we are grateful for this record 
of the events that took place surrounding the life and the death of Christ, the empty tomb and the witnesses. We thank you for this letter and the other accounts that give us a thorough and confident picture of what took place in time, space, and history. I pray that you would help us to understand these things and, even more importantly, how they apply to us, what they mean to us now in this age as we look forward to the return of Christ and the resurrection of all of God's people. We ask, O Lord, your blessing upon this time. In Jesus' name, amen. In recent years, Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad has on more than one occasion publicly declared that the Holocaust against the Jewish people during World War II never took place. And there are quite a few people that believe him, or at least want to believe him, and follow along with his political propaganda. I understand that there are also a minority of people who question that NASA ever sent a rocket space mission to the moon. In fact, there are university professors who believe that it's an entire conspiracy. It's a conspiracy theory based upon a lack of technical ability and basically an entire effort in the Cold War to prove that we were superior to the Soviet Union. Well, there's actually a simple solution to both of these historical problems. We can ask the witnesses. There are still plenty of witnesses available for both of these events. And there's even more mounds of evidence residing in multiple museums and letters and documents and all kinds of written records that are available in books and other resources to assure any skeptic that these things, in fact, are true. You know, it's been said by certain experts that perhaps up to 90% of the things that we claim to know and believe, we accept based upon testimony from people we trust. Most of what we know, we don't know and believe based upon first-hand experience. Rather, we've received it as it has been passed down to us from others. I doubt that very many people in here question that George Washington and Abraham Lincoln were presidents of the United States. Though there is no longer any witnesses, eyewitnesses surviving from those days, their testimony has been passed down to us reliably through historical records and letters, history books, and so forth, has been passed down to us with a firm confidence that these things are reliable. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, the very foundation of the Christian faith, is no different from any of these other historical events. Now, there are some who balk at various teachings of the Bible. There are some who are unhappy with its teachings on male leadership. There are those who question the Bible's teaching on homosexuality. There are those who reject what Jesus has to say about hell. But with all of these contemporary controversial issues, none of these things matter compared to the most important question for the skeptic. Did Jesus rise from the dead? If he did not, we can ignore all those other lesser issues of lesser importance. But if Jesus did rise, 
It changes absolutely everything. And would call us to submit ourselves to the Lordship of Christ, the final authority of all matters of faith and practice. I like to think of Christianity as a package deal. Have you ever bought one of those vacation package deals where you pay one price and it includes everything, and you may not like everything in the package deal, but you've got to pay the one price and you've got to sit through that pesky timeshare sales pitch at the end of your time on vacation? Well, Christianity is something that comes together as a package. And there are certain people who like to approach Christianity in kind of a cafeteria Christianity mentality, picking and choose the parts of it that they want to accept. I'm convinced that Christianity is an all-or-nothing faith. And so for the skeptic tonight, we want to demonstrate the sound reasons we have for believing in the resurrection of Christ. That, that essentially essentially gets rid of all other questions regarding the foundation of what we believe. And for the Christian, those of us who have accepted the message of the resurrection, our challenge is that if we really believe this, it calls us to embrace everything that Jesus has said, which ought to lead to a radical transformation for the way we think and for the way we live. In verses 3 through 8, we have what scholars believe is the earliest written record of the resurrection events. Most scholars accept that Paul wrote the letter to Corinth between 15 and 20 years after the death of Jesus. Imagine, for us today, that would be approximately 1994 to 1989, back when Bill Clinton or George H.W. Bush were presidents. Paul declares that Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And so if anybody wanted to challenge his assessment of these events that took place in the fourth decade of the first century in the territory of Palestine, they were free to inquire and challenge what Paul had to say. They had ample time and opportunity to bring these things into question. And yet, history is silent. In fact, no serious challenges were proposed against these things until the 19th century, long, long after the events themselves. Now, Paul records that Jesus was buried, and he was raised on the third day, as was prophesied in the scriptures and by Jesus himself. And then Jesus appeared personally to Peter, to the 12 disciples, to more than 500 witnesses, also to his brother James, who was skeptical at first, and lastly to Paul, who was transformed from a violent persecutor of the church to the most profound apologist and evangelist in history. Now Paul declares that most of these eyewitnesses were still alive at the time of this writing of this letter. And so he challenges doubters to inquire, to investigate, to seek and ask those who have seen these things to determine whether or not they are true. Now Tim Cower argues that the skeptic can't just say that the resurrection never took place. Rather, the skeptic has the burden of coming up with a better, more historically 
feasible explanation to explain these events that have occurred. Now, arguments against the resurrection typically go something like this. People back in the first century lacked scientific knowledge uh, about the, the nature of the world, and so they were more gullible to magical and supernatural explanations of things, of things they didn't understand. And Jesus' disciples uh, were understandably heartbroken after his death, and because they wished so deeply for him to still be with them, some of them felt like they had visions of Jesus speaking to them. And over time, as over decades, as these feelings of Jesus still living spiritually with them, stories began to develop that Jesus was, had actually risen physically. Well, we can respond to this common theory, explanation of the church's early years, by exposing the first fallacy, namely that the resurrection narratives developed later, long after the events themselves. As I've already mentioned, this first account of 1 Corinthians 15 was written within two decades of the death of Christ. That is not sufficient time for embellishment and uh, to mythologize the story of Christ. There were too many witnesses. There were too many facts in place. In fact, the overwhelming fact, the, the key piece of evidence that stumps the skeptic every time is the empty tomb. Where is the body? The enemies of the church could have easily produced the corpse of Jesus. But they never did. History is silent in any attempt or ability to reproduce the body itself. Well, what about a response to the charges that uh, the story of the resurrection were simply made up? Well, for starters, the accounts, of, the accounts in the Gospels, the accounts in the Scriptures, are too problematic to be fallacious. Do you remember who were the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection? It was a humble group of women. That's a liability. Because women in that day were not considered uh, worthwhile. Their, their testimony was not admissible as evidence in court, in the Jewish court or the Roman court. The church would have no advantage whatsoever to include in their key documents this fact of the first eyewitnesses being a group of women. It would undermine their credibility in the Greco-Roman world and amongst the Jews as well. The only reasonable explanation for why these details are found in the Gospels is because that's the way it actually happened. Scholar N.T. Wright argues that the early leaders of the church must have been under enormous pressure to remove those details from the Gospels because of embarrassment, because of rejection, because of people uh, mocking the Christian faith as old wives' tales. But the leaders could not. The records uh, were too well known. Everybody knew that these women had seen and reported seeing the living Christ before the disciples were aware of his resurrection. Consider the other embarrassments we find in the Gospels. 
Peter's three-time denial of Christ. The density and the lack of faith by the disciples on numerous occasions. The fact that the disciples even doubted Jesus, even after the resurrection. All of these things undermine the credibility of the gospel witness. If you're going to make up a story, you're not going to include details that undermine the message that you're trying to persuade others to believe. All of these liabilities continued uh, present in the gospel text give us confirming evidence that these things are historical fact and not stories made up. What about this uh, contention that first century people were naive and prone to mythological explanations of things they didn't understand? Well, we can see from the gospels themselves and from other literature that the people of that day were no more ready to believe that dead men live again than people believe today. Thomas doubted and needed firm evidence to convince him that Jesus was alive. The Greco-Roman people of that day had a philosophical prejudice against the bodily resurrection. The Greeks believed that the soul was good, whereas the physical was weak and corrupt. Salvation, in the Greek view, was liberation from the body. The resurrection, therefore, was not only impossible, it was undesirable. Okay, there, was no, there was no desire, there was no eagerness to hear a message of resurrection. Remember how the men of Athens were aghast at Paul's message of the resurrection and threw him out of Mars Hill. This was not a culture eager to hear the message of the resurrection. And even the Eastern view of reincarnation, in reincarnation, the goal is to get away from the body. The message of the gospel was completely new and unexpected. Even the uh, ancient, in, within the ancient stories of God's dying and rising again back to life, the Greeks and the Romans knew of these stories, but nobody ever thought that that could happen to a human person. And what about the Jews? Well, the Jews believed in the bodily resurrection, but their belief was in a future bodily resurrection of the righteous at the end of the world when God would restore all of creation. The idea of an individual rising from the dead in the middle of history while the rest of the world lay about in sickness, continued on in decay and death, was inconceivable. What about the hallucination theory? That perhaps the disciples were imagining that Jesus was alive. Well, that theory disregards the fact that the disciples were not expecting a resurrection. The record is very clear that they were shocked and even needed convincing to believe that it was real. What about the conspiracy theory that perhaps the disciples broke in and stole away the body? Well, that assumes that the disciples would have expected their Jewish brothers to believe the account of the resurrection, something they weren't willing to accept unless it, there was convincing evidence. And then there's the ridiculous nature of the conspiracy theory of assuming that 
a cowardly band of disciples would overcome a Roman guard, remove a stone, take away a dead body, and pawn off this idea of him, of Jesus being resurrected. Furthermore, the conspiracy theory completely contradicts the radical change in the disciples' lives, being transformed in a short time from cowards to courageous men who are willing to die, not proclaiming that Jesus was a good man, but proclaiming that Jesus had risen from the dead and were willing to face the fires of martyrdom, upholding this, the things that they have seen and passed on to others. Well, and in fact, uh, we can also point out that uh, there were other messianic movements in the first century uh, and whose leaders, whose messiahs, were executed. And there is no other account, there's no other event in the first century of followers claiming that their leader had risen from the dead. They knew better. They knew they could not convince people of the story unless, in fact, it was true in the case of Jesus and his disciples. So here we are. We're left with this Christian community in the first half of the first century A.D. who have suddenly adopted beliefs that were brand new. And up to this point in history were completely unthinkable. Jesus had a transformed body that could walk through walls, that could eat food, and his was not just a resuscitated body, as the Jews imagined, nor was it merely a spiritual body, as the, Jew, as the Greeks conceived. Every belief was completely unique. And every other instance we have in history of a massive change in thinking massive shift in people's thinking, takes place over a significant period of time. And yet the Christian community developed overnight, within a very, very short time span of affirming some radical new teachings and understandings of God and the true religion. There was no process, there was no time for development and reflection. The disciples simply went about telling others the things that they had seen. And so we can say that the burden rests upon the shoulders of the skeptic to come up with a better explanation for the things that took place in the first half of the first century A.D. We go on and present the problem of church history, which uh, is even more difficult to account for. How is it that Jews so quickly began to worship a human being? You know, in Eastern religions, which believe that God is an impersonal force that permeates uh, all living things, perhaps, perhaps a person in the Eastern mind, a person could be born with more of a divine consciousness and could be worshipped by other people. And uh, then in Western religion, there was the understanding that gods could take up human form, as Paul and Barnabas discovered when they went to the city of Lystra. But the Jews believed in a single, transcendent, personal God. It was blasphemy to ascribe divinity and to give worship to a human person. And yet in Paul's letter to the Philippian church, we find this hymn 
in chapter 2 that clearly ascribes divinity to Jesus Christ. And most scholars accept that that hymn dates to just a few years after the death of Jesus. And so the skeptic is left with this grave challenge of answering these following questions. Why did Christianity emerge so rapidly and with such power? Why did this band of followers conclude that their leader had risen from the dead? What led these Jews to worship a human being as God? What made the Jews, these Jews, believe in an individual resurrection so quickly? And how do we count, account for hundreds of eyewitnesses to the resurrection who lived on for decades, maintaining their testimony and even giving up their lives for what they believe to be true? Well, the best answer is the simplest answer. These things really happen. And if that is so, what does that mean for us today? Well, the first starters, I believe that uh, we must believe in a real bodily resurrection, both for Christ and for us in the future. You see, in verse 12, Paul seems to be addressing the problem of these believers in Corinth who are struggling to shed their Greco-Roman prejudice against the bodily resurrection. There were some who were saying that there is no resurrection of the dead. In their Greek thinking, they just couldn't imagine a salvation that was experienced bodily for eternity. What they wanted was some kind of ethereal spiritual experience, and so they were willing to settle for a spiritual resurrection of Christ. And sadly... That's what most of liberal, modern Protestantism has adopted. In its understanding, in its rejection of biblical miracles based upon modern scientific bias, that salvation is merely the preservation of our eternal spirit. But Paul wants to convince us that to deny the general resurrection of the elect is to deny Christ's resurrection. And his vindication over the cross. To do so is to deny the faith. It would be useless, Paul claims. Our faith is futile if Christ was not raised in the body. We would still be in our sins. The whole point of the resurrection was to demonstrate Jesus' divine power and his triumph over our enemies of sin and death. Without the resurrection... There's nothing else to believe in. Whether it's Greco-Roman resurrection or the modern liberal spiritual resurrection, these things have no substance and offer us no hope in this life or in the life to come. Well, Paul, in the final verse of our passage, cuts to the chase when he says that if in this life only we have hoped in Christ... We are to be pitied more than all men. If there is no resurrection, then the materialists are right. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. He who dies with the most toys wins. If Christ was not raised, then those first century Christians were deluded. They suffered persecution for nothing. 
all those who are martyred suffered needlessly. They're to be pitied, not admired. Even Christ's crucifixion was senseless. Every martyr's death, every sense was pointless. And everything that you and I give up, the temptations we resist, the sacrifices we make, without the resurrection, are meaningless. But if these things are so, if Jesus has conquered death, and he presently reigns over heaven and earth, that changes everything. You know, I can't really imagine what it must be like to be a Christian minister who doesn't believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ. I, for one, if I came to the conclusion that these things were not so, I would promptly resign. I would withdraw from the fellowship of the church. I guess I would satisfy my religious itch by reading ancient Greek and Roman writings, trying to make the best of this life of despair try to be a good moral pagan for the benefit of my family. But I would never hearken the door of a church again and wouldn't dare enter this pulpit. See, the reality of the resurrection gives me the resolve and the courage to stand here and proclaim the truth of God. What does the resurrection mean for you? It means that you and I are not to be afraid of anything. Not persecution, cancer, financial failure, even death itself. Fear not those who can kill the body, but fear him who can cast the soul into eternal fires. If Jesus conquered death, our greatest enemy, we need not fear the lesser ones. Good health, And a comfortable retirement are not consolations in this life of pain. Jesus is our consolation. We must not grieve like the pagans who have no hope when our loved ones pass on from this life. Rather, we rejoice with the redeemed who are now in the presence of Christ. The resurrection takes the sting out of death. Have you ever been stung by a jellyfish at the shore? Or stung by a yellow jacket mowing your yard in the backyard. Life stings. And there is death to follow. But Jesus reigns over both. Providing the healing balm to comfort us in all of our woes. The resurrection also means that we cannot live any way we please. Jesus has a claim on our lives. God's work of renovation in this world applies to us. Our lives are not our own. We belong to another. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you forever. We need not fear that our works are, alas, all in vain. For we will live on in eternity. And our works do follow us. Too many secular people short-circuit their investigation of Christianity, assuming that miracles just can't be possible. One of my seminary professors, Dr. Dan Doriani, told of the encounter he had with a skeptical man, and Dr. Doriani made an overwhelming case, using all these arguments and more uh, to make the claim that Jesus really did rise from the dead um, to the satisfaction of this skeptical man, and yet still, 
this man replied simply, well, strange things happen. You see, the only way that anyone can embrace the reality of the resurrection is to let the evidence challenge them, to change their worldview, to change their entire understanding of what is even possible. But for the Christian, for most of us here tonight, I believe we can become like the skeptic of sorts, not disputing the resurrection, even affirming it, but still living as if it doesn't matter. Tim Keller challenges skeptics in his church that though they may not be able to believe the resurrection, they should want to believe the resurrection. You know, many people, Christian and non, care about justice for the poor, alleviating hunger and disease, caring for the environment. However, the secularist believes in a world that will eventually burn up in the death of the sun. The secularist worldview undermines any real motive to make this world a better place. Why sacrifice for the needs of others if it makes no eternal difference? In response, we can say, the message of the resurrection is that this life matters. N.T. Wright goes on to say, take away Easter and Karl Marx is probably right to accuse Christianity of ignoring problems of the material world. Take it away, and Freud was probably right to say Christianity is wish fulfillment. Take it away, and Nietzsche probably was right to say it was for wimps. The resurrection of Christ means that this world matters. And it means we must follow Jesus. We cannot serve both God and mammon. Our kingdom priorities must trump self-improvement, self-realization, and the cult of self. The Bible calls us to die to self. For to live is Christ, and to die is gain. The resurrection means we follow Jesus to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with the Lord our God to care for the poor and the widow and the orphan, to love our enemies, even in a society growing in hostility against everything that we cherish and hold dear, the sanctity of human life, personal responsibility, financial accountability, the rule of law, marriage, and children. And yet the resurrection would call us to hate what is wicked and to cling to what is good. To give away our possessions. To not worry about your life. The resurrection means we must forgive your spouse, your boss, your parents, your pastor, your president. The resurrection calls us to keep our life pure and unspotted and unpolluted by the world. And we can go on and on and on through all the biblical commands. My final question for you tonight is, do you live out the reality of the resurrection now, even as you wait for the resurrection that is to come? We close with the words of Paul as he writes to the Philippian church in chapter 3, 
I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Praise be to God. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we do give you praise. For your reign on high, you have conquered sin and death. You dwell in us by your Holy Spirit. And you've given us life and freedom, hope and everlasting joy. We pray for that resurrection hope to fill us each day, to guide us, to inspire us, to empower us to live the way you've called us to live, that you might be glorified, that the pagans might see our good deeds and glorify you on the day of your visitation. We long for that day when we will join you in glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.